Okay, good evening. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, let's start with a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this evening. We thank you, uh, Lord, that we can open your word and, and uh, also learn a little bit about the history uh, behind uh, some of the passages in the scripture. We pray uh, that you would bless this time we spend together, uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this evening, I thought I would uh, present some uh, history. Um, I'm not sure whether when was the last time you had a, a history lesson, but uh, history is not my strong point, but I found it very interesting. Uh, the Bible isn't just full of history, it's part of history. And uh, this history is crucial in our understanding of the scriptures. It helps us because we then learn about the audience that it was written to in the circumstances they were facing. Particularly tonight, we are looking at the four gospel books uh, of the New Testament and how the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ was in the middle of various political and cultural uh, circumstances. We can also find clues in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, that can point us to how each gospel writer presented the person and message of Jesus Christ. Uh, I just press that. When we open the New Testament to the book of Matthew, we discover that the world has changed radically from the close of Malachi. Rome is now the dominant power of the earth, and the Roman legions have spread throughout the length and breadth of the civilized world. The center of power has shifted from east to west in Rome, and Israel is a puppet state, and the Jews have not regained their own sovereignty from the time of Babylon. There is a new king on the throne, but this king is the descendant of Esau instead of Jacob, and his name is Herod the Great. Furthermore, the high priests who now sit in the seat of religious authority are no longer from the line of Aaron. They cannot trace their descendancy back, rather they are hired priests to whom the office is sold to the highest bidder for political gain. The temple is still the centre of Jewish worship, although the building has been destroyed partially and rebuilt many times since the Old Testament. And now the synagogues that have sprung up in every Jewish city seem to be the centre of Jewish life, even more than the temple. How did we get to this point? And how did we get to the rise of the Roman Empire? Well, to answer that question, we have to go uh, back to Malachi. The Old Testament closes around the ministry of Malachi in the 5th century BC, following the third return to Jerusalem led by Nehemiah. History will show that following this, there are four centuries of silent years, a period of time where God raises no new prophets and gives no new revelations to his people. Uh, here's a verse, Psalm 74, 9. We see not our signs, there is no more any prophet, neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. And this is the state of the nation of Israel at the close of the Old Testament. Having successfully attacked the temple, the sanctuary of God, the enemies of God wanted to destroy the people of God altogether. They aimed to do this by first destroying all the meeting places, places of worship throughout the land. And the enemies of God and his people 
then succeeded in gravely damaging the spiritual life of Israel. Uh, throughout these silent years, there's much turmoil and many significant political changes happening around the world. Empires come and go, and some become world powers. However, every one of them are eventually defeated and replaced by other world powers. During this period, the Jews now live in the land that its neighbors now call Palestine. Israel, as we knew it in the Old Testament, has changed dramatically. There are three major foreign powers that will come to control the land in succession. The Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Towards the end of the Greek Empire, there are around 70 years of Jewish independence, but this is quickly quashed by the Roman Empire. So this is the time period we're looking at tonight, uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and going into the four Gospel books. So who can remember this statue from the book of Daniel? Uh, there are, there's a head of gold, the chest of silver, the uh, legs of bronze and iron, and then iron and clay. Um, so, uh, a little bit of a quiz, who can remember uh, the different empires that these metals represented uh, in the prophecy of Daniel? Anybody? Yes. So, Babylon, oh, I've just revealed it all. <laughs> there it is. Silver is uh, the Medes and the Persians. Bronze will be the Greeks. Iron will be the Roman Empire. Um, so, let's start with the Persian Empire. Uh, at this time, around 430 BC, some of the Jews have returned to Israel from Babylonian captivity. As you can see, the Persian Empire stretches right across near India on the east and right across near Greece on the west. Uh, the Persian Empire, with Aramaic as its dominant language of diplomacy, is now at its height, having pushed back against the Greek city-states of the day in what is known as the Greco-Persian Wars. The cities of Greece are still in its infancy and they fight amongst one another. The Persians rule the world. In Israel, the temple at Jerusalem has been rebuilt, the priesthood of Aaron's line has been restored, and Jewish law has been established once again. However, the Jews are mistreating one another, intermarrying with surrounding pagan communities, and neglecting teaching God's ways to their children, and living in wickedness privately. The situation is dire, and the ministry of Malachi is a timely warning to the people of God. These years blinded and deafened the nation of Israel to the point that many Jews had no interest, let alone knowledge, of a coming Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just, and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Prophecies like this the Israelites had no interest in anymore. Hostility between Jews and Samaritans starts also during the time of the Persian Empire. We see later examples of this in the New Testament. During the height of the Persian Empire, a new ruler comes on the scene. Philip of Macedon, 
unites the, is the islands of Greece, and his son, Alexander, leads the armies of Greece in victory over the Persians. After almost a century, the Persian Empire is finally conquered in 333 BC, and the land of Israel falls to the rapidly rising classical Greek Empire. So as you can see on the left there, the uh, islands of Greece are now united under Philip, and they push back uh, to the Persian Empire, and they gradually control this entire region. So, Alexander the Great. As Alexander expanded his empire, he brought Greek culture and language with him, specifically the Koine Greek dialect. The sudden death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC, just 10 years later, brought about upheaval in the political arena of world history. At the time of his death, his empire stretched from Greece to the west to India in the east, and from Assyria in the north to Egypt in the south. Throughout this vast empire, people began to speak and write in Greek instead of or in addition to their native language. Though Aramaic had been brought to many communities by the Persians, the Greek language spread far more prolifically due to the Greeks' artistic, cultural, political, economic and military influences. Alexander's empire was divided amongst his four generals. Two are particularly noteworthy, uh, they're the two biggest ones. One was given to Ptolemy, who controlled Egypt, and Seleucus, who controlled Syria. And as you can see, the land of Israel is right between these two empires, and Israel will change hands and be in the middle of conflict for the next two centuries. Due to the cultural impact of the Greek Empire, many Jews now spoke Greek in addition to or instead of Hebrew especially outside Israel. As a result, many were unable to read the Hebrew Old Testament. Around 250 BC, in the Egyptian city of Alexandria, under the reign of Ptolemy, a group of 70 scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament, book by book, for the first time into Greek. This is today known as the Septuagint, meaning 70. Jews who didn't understand Hebrew used the Septuagint Bible instead and this became the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. From it, many quotations in our New Testament are derived. A little later on, about 203 BC, a king named Antiochus the Great came into power in Syria, to the north of Israel. He captured Jerusalem from the Egyptians and began the reign of Syrian power over Israel. He had two sons, one of whom succeeded him and reigned only a few years later and when he died, his brother took the throne. Um, we're going to go into a bit of detail to this man, named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was one of the most violent and vicious persecutors of the Jews ever known. This king persecuted the Jews and desecrated the second temple at Jerusalem. His first act was to depose the high priest, thus ending the long line of succession, beginning with Aaron and his sons. Antiochus Epiphanes then sold the priesthood to others. In 170 BC, he invaded Egypt, and while he was there, Israel heard false reports that Antiochus had been killed. The Hebrew people revolted, and Antio Antiochus, who was alive, heard of it. 
He returned to Jerusalem. He forced his way in. He destroyed the temple scrolls. He took a pig, an unclean animal, and offered it on the altar in the Holy of Holies. He then sprinkled its blood everywhere in the sanctuary, defiling the temple. This won't be the last time the Jerusalem temple will be desecrated. We read about the Antichrist still to come in the future to do this prophesied in Daniel. Under the leadership, however, of Judas Maccabeus, the Jews overthrew the Syrians. They retook Jerusalem. They cleansed and rededicated the temple to Jehovah in 164 BC. And today, the festival of Hanukkah uh, celebrates this occasion. Antiochus, who is now engaged in other conflicts with the growing Roman armies, relents to the revolt and unbans Judaism. Jerusalem and the surrounding area now become semi-independent during this period known as the Hasmonean Kingdom. However, there is great instability as fighting continues between the Jews and the Syrians. Now we come to the Romans. Once the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC, the Roman Empire established its power on Israel. The Hasmonean dynasties were overthrown and the Romans ruled the land. At this time, remember, the Greek language is still very much in widespread use. And despite Latin being the official language in Rome, much of the Roman Empire, particularly the East and South, retained their Greek influences. In 47 BC, Julius Caesar installs Antipater, a descendant of Esau, as procurator of Judea, having now become a Roman province. Antipater appoints his two sons as kings of Galilee and Judea. So this is a very complicated family tree, uh, but we're just looking at Herod the Great at the top and his three sons who he divided the Judean kingdom amongst. As New Testament history opens, Antipas's son Herod the Great is king of Judea. Since he was an Edomite, the Jews disliked him. Even when Herod rebuilt the temple at Jerusalem, he couldn't completely win the favor of the Jews. He was still a cruel and selfish king. He killed two of his wives and at least three of his sons. And remember, he also ordered the death of all the baby boys under the age of two at the time of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But soon, Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, and his kingdom is divided amongst three of his sons. So you can see there Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip now control the three divided regions. Furthermore, the priesthood wasn't of the Aaronic line. Politics results in the development of two major factions, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And there's a third one up there, the Essenes, who are a smaller group. The more liberal Sadducees favor the philosophies of the Greeks, while the more traditional Pharisees are zealots who drive religious law into the lives of the people. In addition to political changes, there are also religious changes in this period. The Jews still worship at the temple, just like the Old Testament, and they still study the Torah at their synagogues. As long as the Jewish people are at peace with Rome, they're allowed their own religion, their own language, and their own customs. 
This sets the scene for the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 1-2 Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. So just to recap, we've seen many people rule over the land after the Old Testament. We have the Persians, the Greeks, a brief period of Israel uh, coming back to independence, and then the Romans. So, summary. The 400 years before the New Testament. The preceding 400 years sets the scene for the gospel and the entrance of Messiah. As the world around them changed, the Jews in Israel became entrenched in new leadership and religious organization. In this period, Israel is dominated by Gentile nations, the Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Syrians, and after a brief period, the Roman Empire. The Pax Romana, a largely peaceful system of roadways and communication outlets, and a a situation in history where there was general peace throughout the world. There was an influence of Greek culture, and its common language remained. Rome was tolerant of Judaism, there were the rise of synagogues, the Old Testament law was re-established, and the Old Testament was translated into Greek. While all four books narrate the life and ministry of Jesus, they present their accounts with different emphases and styles. So we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, that are classified as synoptic gospels because they largely parallel each other in both content and narrative structure. In some cases, the same passages appear in all three books exactly the same. The world of the gospel writings are therefore mixed. You have the geography of Israel, the culture of the Greeks, the Hebrews, Persians, and the politics of Rome. So let's look at the four gospel books. Firstly, Matthew. The first book of the New Testament, Matthew, captures the background of the Roman Empire and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and it presents Jesus as the kingly Messiah. One writer refers to Matthew as an encounter between old and new. There is continuity with the God of the Old Testament and discontinuity with the laws of the past. God, whose grace to the world in times past was shown in the deliverance of Israel as God's chosen people, is the same God whose grace is now shown in the person of Jesus, whose life, death and resurrection reveal a new covenant. Jesus is God with us. Oh, I'll stay there. The Gospel of Matthew refutes the Pharisees' teachings that the will of God can only be known through a detailed interpretation of the law. In contrast, Jesus is shown to proclaim that he himself fulfills the law. Throughout this book, Matthew treats the Pharisees as Jesus' main opponents, with Jesus calling them hypocrites and warning that only righteousness exceeding theirs will earn a place in the kingdom of heaven. Read this condemnation here from Matthew 5.20. For I say unto you, 
that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is also a strong political background in the fact that Jesus is presented as the Messiah, one that will liberate and save from a cruel regime. Jesus assures that the kingdom of heaven is for the meek and poor of spirit, for all, including fishermen, farmers, beggars, lepers, the lame and the infirm. The kingdom of heaven upends the traditional Roman hierarchy. Now Mark. The second book, Mark, is agreed by many scholars today to be written the earliest. From its literary style, it is evident that the audience to whom this book was directed was a Greek audience, as there are numerous explanations of Jewish customs and translations of Aramaic expressions. Um, I won't try to pronounce the Aramaic expressions, but as you can see, uh, Mark goes into great uh, detail trying to translate uh, Aramaic expressions into Greek. Mark did not emphasize the discourse or sayings of Jesus as much as the other books. This has resulted in many referring to Mark as the most action-packed of the four renderings of the Gospel. Jesus is presented here as a suffering servant and frequently makes use of the word euthus or straightway or immediately. Mark opens with a passage that is rich in intertextuality, referencing the prophet Isaiah, which, as some writers say, presents the importance of reading evangel or the gospel in the context of Isaiah rather than strictly Roman terms. The phrase euangelion was often used as a message from the battlefield in Rome, announcing victory. But this euangelion in the Bible is the fullest expression of God's plan of redemption. The first chapter parallels Isaiah, John the Baptist coming in the wilderness, compared with in Isaiah 40, Jesus' baptism compared with Isaiah 42, Jesus' proclamation of the gospel compared with Isaiah 40. So we have a clear break away from the Roman Empire's concept of good news. We have here the sovereignty of God over against the sovereignty of Rome. Authentic peace, not through conquering people, but through their release from bondage to sin, into freedom through God, and through the restoration of God's people under the banner of salvation. So Luke. The third book, Luke, presents Jesus as the Son of Man. It is the only book of the four Gospels to have a sequel, the book of Acts, as well as the only one to begin with the direct prologue. The literary style is very articulate with exceptional Greek syntax. This prologue bears many formal similarities to prefaces found in ancient scientific and technical writings. Think of a highly respected scientific journal or research paper today, and you're getting close to the quality of literature found in the Gospel according to Dr. Luke. Luke uh, is the only, there is only, uh, there's only one passage in the book of Luke to use the first person singular, 
and the use of the term narrative in the first part of it indicates the work was written with a definitive historical purpose in mind. The last clause points to the book as that which provides assurance or certainty. So you see there in Luke 1.1, 1, 1, he uses the word declaration, a historical narrative. And in Luke 1.4, the word certainty. So Luke is presenting this gospel book as something that is certain, something that is a declaration, something that is historical fact. John. The fourth book, John, was written a couple of decades after the other three, and many scholars agree that it was written by John the Apostle following the Roman destruction of the Jerusalem Temple in 70 AD. John presents Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and humanity as either of the darkness or of the light. Remember, now, as this book has been written, the church, uh, the Christian church, has been growing. He references the Greek philosophies of dualism that was prevalent in the day. He puts forth the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way to God. The opening of this book is rich in theology. It stamps a divine identity of Jesus Christ, because while he's sent by God and works miracles just like the Old Testament prophets, he who is God has come in the flesh. This gospel book of John is like a defense of Jesus as well as an anticipation of the mixed response to Jesus. The revelation of God is met with unbelief and rejection from both the world, which was made through him, and from his own people. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John departs from the three preceding books in the New Testament in that he clearly gives the divine identity of Jesus from the outset. John is addressing the deniers and philosophers of his day head on. There are other significant differences in the content of the Synoptic Gospels and John. The Synoptic Gospels contain instructions and exhortations regarding matters such as the use of money, the giving of alms, anger, lust, adultery, divorce, forgiving others, and justice, so that Jesus often stands comparable to the Old Testament prophets. But in John, Jesus' teaching has been distilled into a single new command to love one another. A final distinguishing marker of Jesus' teaching in John is found in his choice of vocabulary. Nouns such as love, truth, Glory, light, darkness, life, world, father, son, and verbs such as see, look, know, believe, have faith, send, and abide are all words common to John, appearing in this book more than the rest of the Gospels combined. Here in this book, Jesus addresses different topics and uses both a different vocabulary and a different teaching style. John's Gospel has likely been shaped by the rising tensions between synagogues and church, or between those who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and those who did. Those who follow Jesus Christ have the ongoing mission of understanding his life 
and word in their own time and their own place in history. It's now our responsibility to understand how the Bible applies to us today in our generation. One writer gave expression to his reading of the four gospel books, not simply from a historical, factual or objective standpoint, but with the added understanding that the reader, the individual, is the one to whom God is speaking through his inspired written word. This writer also wrote about the thrust of the four gospel books with its history behind it. He writes this, Classically, the virtues were understood as powers or capacities, as was reflected in the Latin root virtus, meaning strength. However, virtue can serve the lust for glory as easily as it serves God. If the virtues are not rightly directed towards God, they are but vices. For virtue which is employed in the service of human glory is not true virtue. When interpreted as the fruits of the Spirit, these virtues are rescued from the pursuit of glory and domination. The writer declares that the city of God arises from the love of God, while the city of earth arises from the love of self. This is a good example of someone who understands the scriptures in light of their world in history. This writer's generation's history shows the sin of man, even as biblical history does, shown in Roman politics with the founding story of Romulus killing Remus as an extension of the lust for domination when Cain killed Abel. It's not that Christians should refuse to participate in the politics of the earthly city, but rather Christians in every aspect of life must be radically transformed by Jesus and the gospel. Christians would do well to renounce their love of domination and glory. Indeed, they will love the reign of God more than they love their own kingdoms, and they will be happier to be members of the church than be rulers of the world. In contrast, Roman heroes belong to an earthly city, and the aim before them was the safety of their country, and a kingdom not in heaven, but on earth. What else was there for them to love save glory? The psalmist penned in Psalm 43, the ultimate goal of the Christian who trusts in God, in just five verses. The third verse is the fulcrum, which the gospel encapsulates, with the prayer that God would send out his light and his truth, the light being glorious, the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, who should shine unto the world. We can learn much from even secular history surrounding the New Testament world. The gospel rejects the world powers of Greece and Rome, because the truth of the good news hopes in one who is far greater, Jesus Christ, the King, the Servant, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And how about today, 2022? Our issue is not an absence of God's word or God's teachers like Jerusalem in its barren, ruined despair. Our problem is that we do not value this word given unto us and preserved for us enough. We do not cherish it and study it as we ought. We do not memorize its precepts as we ought. Instead, sometimes we allow countless lesser things to take the Bible's place. May I urge us tonight, dear brethren, to echo the psalmist here in Psalm 43. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? 
Does it feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders? And why art thou disquieted? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Yes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians and the Roman empires threaten to invade forever, but they will not and they have not prevailed. We serve a living God. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you this evening for uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have shown us even through world history uh, that you are very much at work in the lives and the hearts of your people. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, we would uh, come before you afresh, uh, draw nigh unto you, uh, Lord, may our lives be a sacrifice unto you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.